The rationalistic requirement that you explain the workings of every possible solution in advance before you can test it is actually a limitation on the pace and range of discovery. In the era of digital disruption, behavioural economics and the innovator's dilemma, increasing numbers of people are questioning whether the traditional faith in logic and planning may in fact be obstacles to progress. The constraint on business decision-making that everything has to make sense in advance is actually a creative limitation which imposes huge opportunity costs on business. Hello and welcome to another Tech for Impact podcast. Today I'm talking to Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman of one of the world's largest advertising agencies. He's spent the last 30 years trying to understand what makes people buy things and how best to use that knowledge. In his recent book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense, he argues that illogical thinking can be uniquely powerful. And so I wondered, can illogical thinking help to make people more environmentally conscious? Rory, many thanks for talking to me today. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm so glad you enjoyed Alchemy. It's a pleasure when it's discovered by audiences I never really anticipated, which is always the joy of writing a book, I think. I've come to it from the perspective of somebody who talks a lot about sustainability and environment and climate issues, and you touch on those things very, very briefly on on two or three occasions in the book. But the one thing that you did say in the book that made me think I need to talk to you about this was the phrase... Might it be easier to save the environment if we talked less about doing so? And you're, you're posing a, a solution to the climate crisis that I hadn't even considered. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about. But perhaps it might be better to begin the conversation talking about the, uh, the, the underpinning. Tell me what the essential thesis of the book is. Well, the essential thesis of the book is that um, if you have any problem which involves human behavior, it is a extraordinary mistake and an extraordinarily self-imposed creative limitation not to consider the possibility that the solution to the problem might be psychological or a marketing problem or a, 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 a um, an idea in terms of presentation or recontextualizing something to the human mind. In other words, a perceptual solution rather than necessarily a solution that involves objective reality, a change in the technology or a change in the price. You use one sentence in the book where you say, the human mind does not run on logic any more than a horse runs on petrol. So we've evolved to perceive the world in terms and to respond to the world in terms of what things mean, not in terms of what they are. And if you recontextualize something, you can make it mean something different and the resulting behavior will be completely different as a result. I'll give you a very simple thing which has occurred to me very recently about solar power. The quality, I think, and the efficiency of the technology has improved immensely. The cost of the panels has dropped dramatically. Okay. So to some extent, we have already solved that problem from an economic and technological perspective. But there remains one huge psychological hurdle which no one seems to notice, which is the installation of solar panels on your home requires a one-off, irreversible expenditure of a five-figure sum. 
humans are very reluctant to engage in those kind of transactions. It's like asking someone to get married on a first date. Okay, not many of us do that. Now, that seems to be a fairly shallow psychological insight. But it strikes me that if you could develop solar panels in a modular form, so I could start by having a solar powered conservatory or a solar powered summer house with an expenditure of a few thousand pounds and then gradually ramp it up to a larger and larger part of my household consumption over time, the psychological hurdle, which is yet to be overcome, might be significantly reduced. But is the psychological hurdle that we're talking about here a slightly bigger one? We're looking to do more than just get them to put a solar panel on the roof. We're, getting, we're looking to get them to buy into the idea that this is a problem at all. And one of the biggest issues that, that I think that the entire world faces is that people are simply unwilling to accept the fact that there is a problem at all. Is there a way we could use those arts of marketing and communication to persuade them simply that they should be taking this seriously? Well, don't don't get completely fixated on trying to change attitude before you change behavior. There's a very naive view of human psychology, which is that attitudinal change is a necessary and sufficient precursor to behavioral change. And it simply isn't true. OK, so to increase um, recycling rates in London, one of the things we did was a campaign that basically just said one bin is rubbish. And the point of this insight is that actually whether you recycle or not, is not actually perfectly correlated with your attitude to environmental degradation or the climate. It's very largely a function of the environment in which you find yourself. I would argue that if you put Jeremy Clarkson in a French villa for three weeks with uh, a triage bin, Jeremy would probably bother to separate out his uh, waste into three separate categories. If you put someone who claimed to be, and indeed was, a committed environmentalist in that same villa for three weeks with only one bin, by week two, you know, they'd be starting to do what the Irish call feck it. The Irish always describe themselves as having a feck it bin, which is you look at the recycling bins, and if you can't make up your mind, you put it in the feck it bin. Now, one of the points I'm making is you don't have to change behaviour by converting people to your cause. I'm sorry, it's a really important insight, this, because um, in some senses, the environmental movement might have unnecessarily polarised and alienated people on the political right by becoming too closely identified with one particular wing of politics. Now, if you refer to environmentalism as rewilding, for example, you'll find quite a lot of right-wing people are quite interested by it. This is reframing. If you talk, there's a wonderful experiment where they discovered if you talk to religious groups in the United States and you didn't talk about environmentalism, which they see as hippies, okay, you instead talked about stewardship, which is a concept already familiar in, you know, New Testament and Old Testament thinking, those same people were very, very receptive to the general principle. So I, I'm against I'm against the political the politicization of this anyway. I do see your point, and, and I've written it down again from, from your book. You say, if we wish people to behave in an environmentally conscious way, there are other tools we can use rather than an appeal to reason or duty. Yeah. Um, just just explain that, if you would. What kind of tools can we give them? What kind of tools can we use? I'll explain it in terms of soap and hygiene. So before penicillin came along, the greater gains in human longevity and health and quality of life were probably achieved more by Unilever and Procter and Gamble than they were by the science of medicine to a great extent. And we should include things like sewerage and other improvements to the built environment. Okay. 
But general practices of cleanliness, behaviours, uh, led to that huge improvement as much as any medical advance did up until antibiotics. Now, if you look at most soap advertising from the 1890s or the 1910s, it's a very Darwinian appeal to selfish self-interest, which is to say that um, basically, unless you wash with our soap, you will die single and alone. You know, it was to do with your own individual attractiveness. So if you can build a selfish benefit into the pro-social benefit and you can get people to adopt a pro-social behavior without necessarily having to resort to an appeal to the public good. All right. Why not do that? If it achieves the behavior you want, and you might argue, you might argue, let's reserve appeals to altruism for those circumstances where only pure altruism can solve the problem. And let's try and, you know, deploy our altruism where it's actually necessary and unavoidable rather than squandering it in things which could just as well be achieved by changing the built environment, uh, changing uh, the choice architecture, uh, changing the social norms, for example, or conventions. OK, you say why not do that? But the, let's let's get on to what does that mean? What is there that we can do? Uh, one, one, of the, one of the phrases again in your book is, Tiny things that you can discover when selling bars of chocolate can be relevant in how you encourage more consequential behavior. So how do we do that? How do we encourage consequential behavior through these insights that you're providing when it comes to climate change? I mean, let's be honest here, OK? What will probably happen in the next 12 months is I will buy an electric car, perhaps a Tesla, OK? And I will buy the electric car for all kinds of reasons, um, but not least that they are incredibly cool. OK, having bought the Tesla, I will then become more environmentally conscious and more overt because my attitude is being shaped to actually align with my behavior, not the other way around. And I will probably start teasing my friends who still have diesel cars by basically saying, well, of course, you could come along in your car if that is you want to completely destroy the planet in the process of making the journey. OK, now, the point I'm making... So the old peer pressure trick. You don't necessarily have to change people's minds in order to change their behaviour. And indeed, by changing people's behaviour, you can hasten the process of changing people's minds. OK, you're, you are... You are... Uh, a black belt in, yes. in these arts of, of persuasion. I'm coming to you for a free consultation. I run a website dedicated to the proposition that if I provide solutions to sustainability problems in developing countries and people adopt them, then we are making progress. Give me some advice. How, how do I market this proposition? How do I market these ideas to a general public that seems unwilling to think about? Them? I think that there is a fundamental problem before which we need to solve before we solve anything else, which is we're asking everybody to do everything simultaneously. OK, it goes back to that point I made about solar panels, that you're asking people to make a one off irrevocable commitment of a five figure sum, which might turn out to be a failure. OK, uh, which is irreversible. Now, I'm saying if we can create modular solutions to this problem, we can get people to make a small investment in this is foot in the door theory. If you want me to borrow about how you sell small things like Bibles or door to door encyclopedias, one of the things you know is that if you can get someone to make a small commitment, it's much easier then to go back and ask them to make a larger one. Now, what we're doing environmentally is we're shouting at everybody about everything. 
And that demands a level of behavioural change, a level, to, a level of habit disruption and a level of breaking social norms, which is simply unrealistic within our known parameters of social behaviour. OK, it's uh, it's asking people to effectively give up too much simultaneously. Now, my contention would be if a government or any other highly respected global organization presented me with a series of choices and they said, here are five big things you can do. Here are five medium sized things you can do. And here are five small things you can do. And we want you to choose and commit to doing two of them, two of the big things, two of the medium sized things, two of the small things for the next year. I did have now very interestingly, uh, it's quite difficult. If I told you to cut down clothes, actually, clothing is a very, very bad contributor to the environment. We never talk about this, but the fashion industry has a fairly massive footprint. Strangely, it's very difficult to ask people to buy fewer clothes. OK, so I made a decision, which is just this is one of the an example of one of the big commitments you could ask people to make. Don't buy any clothes or shoes or apparel for a year. Now, interestingly, I did that. And it's quite interesting because I suddenly discovered I had an old pair of very good shoes and I could send them off somewhere. And for a fairly hefty amount of money, they'd come back as new. Now, I wouldn't have discovered that if I hadn't imposed the temporary, temporary, arbitrary and binary constraint on my own behaviour. What, what you're doing is you're suggesting that governments should be thinking more about this. But are you also suggesting that uh, it's governments that should be leading this situation or should we be trying to persuade consumers at an individual level? It's a mixture of a choice problem and a coordination problem. You need a central respected body to tell people where they can really make a difference. Now, I'll give you an example. I met Stephen Pinker once and Stephen Pinker apologised for getting involved in student campaigns which said turn off your mobile phone charger when you're not using it. OK, and the reason Pinker apologized for lending weight to that campaign was he said, it's actually a behavior that makes you feel good, but it makes piss all difference, to be absolutely honest, to, uh, to energy consumption. So those behaviors are actually quite dangerous because they have a high symbolic value, but they tend to burn altruistic potential in a behavior which, to be honest, isn't that valuable. Whereas putting your dishwasher on or replacing your boiler or not flying for a year can make an enormous difference. OK. And so if we had a body which told people, here are 20 behaviours, a mixture of big, medium and small that make a big, medium and small difference. We're not asking you to adopt all of them because change happens at the margin. It doesn't happen generally overnight, barring a pandemic or something of that kind. OK, we're not asking you to adopt all of them and we're not asking you to adopt them in perpetuity. OK, but we're simply saying for the next 12 months, OK, I might commit not to fly, not to buy any apparel and I might commit to buying a small solar or wind powered device for my home. OK, now, some people, by the way, including poor people, will be able to tick those boxes anyway because they say, well, I'm not I can't afford to fly and, um, uh, you know, I don't buy any clothes anyway. OK, now you're asking people to make the change where it makes the most difference to the planet at the lowest cost to them. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. You're, also, you're also asking, quite rightly, the rich to make a bit more of an effort than the poor. But how can I ask governments to take on board what you're saying, to understand the message of this psychological thinking, as you put it in the book, and, and begin to, to present their own solutions and their own actions in that framing? 
because um, this is an inter- okay. Let me. This is an interesting problem, which comes down to an issue in physics and statistical mechanics called ergodicity. And um, if you try and solve for the average, and you treat everybody as the average person, and you give them the advice to behave as the average person would, what you end up doing is you give them too much advice, and they end up doing nothing. Okay. Now let me give an example of this from health. Most people aren't actually very sensitive to salt. Okay, it doesn't matter if they eat salt, but there's a percentage of people whose blood pressure is very adversely affected by the consumption of salt. They don't uh, compensate very well. And so it's a health message that says don't eat salt to everybody. Okay, and you do see an improvement in overall health if overall salt consumption comes comes down. But actually, the improvement in health only occurs among the five or six percent of people who are affected. Now, actually, on its own, if that were the only piece of health advice we ever gave, don't use salt. Okay, that would be perfectly effective. And I think it would be justifiable and it would work. Okay, the problem is, is when you multiply that by 10, you say, don't eat salt, don't eat this, don't eat that. Exercise more. Take up jogging. If you give each individual 17 pieces of advice rather than allowing each individual to choose the three that will make a difference to them disproportionately at the lowest possible cost to their behavior, Okay, you have a different form of uh, information going on. And the problem of communicating to people as though the average is representative of the whole is a problem that physicists noted in the 19th century in which economists and actually advertising people haven't noticed now. There are lots of examples of this. If you actually look at, by the way, at things like diabetes, you'll discover the last chapter of Matthew Syed's superb book, Rebel Ideas, talks about this, which is there are people weirdly who are sort of pre-diabetic. But what you discover if you look at them individually is they can kind of eat cream cakes, but they mustn't eat nectarines. I think I've got that right. Okay. now, on average, you're better off eating more fruit and eating fewer cream cakes. But actually, the advice to the individual would be completely different. And so by creating a consensus around the climate, and maybe it requires a Greta, maybe it requires a governmental organization, maybe it requires a general movement. By actually telling people, essentially, let's maximize the value exchange between planet and consumer in a way that respects your different circumstances, your different preferences, but also directs those flexible choices into behaviours that do genuinely make a difference, rather than symbolic behaviours that are, as a skinnical friend of mine used to say of an advertising campaign, it's like pissing yourself in a dark suit. You get a nice warm feeling, but nobody else notices, right? And um, uh, sorry to add a bit of advertising vulgarity to the conversation. But you see what I mean? I mean, that, you know, turning off your mobile phone chargers, don't get people to do that because it just, you know, they feel great. They feel they've made a difference. Piss all happens. The government can put legislation to stop people doing things. It can provide economic incentives. We can use behavior economics and legislation in combination. That might be the most powerful thing of all. Okay. Um, What I object to is that people with an engineering mentality, people with an economic mentality and people with a um, uh, actually people with a technological mentality and people with a legalistic mentality are deterministic thinkers and they automatically define problems in terms of their own imagined solution. And the probabilistic and experimental psychological approach never even gets a look in from the day one, because by the time those people have defined the problem, they've frozen psychology out of the solution set. Let me turn it around a little bit and bring another angle to the conversation, because, again, as I said earlier on, 
part of uh, what seems to be the problem is a willful denial uh, of some sections of the public, or in some cases, just a fear of acknowledging the problem at hand. Um, and that could be, as you, as you pointed out, because we're framing it the wrong way or some political angle comes into it. But another point that you make in the book is, is to uncover uh, obstacles that are hidden. You talk about uh, unconscious obstacles that may come up in people's minds. And I'm wondering whether in the, in the case of climate change, is there a way we could actually go about looking for that unconscious obstacle? What would we do uh, to see if, if that were there and be able to counter it? Experiment. Uh uh, an experiment without only trying logical things, but trying things that at first set, at first glance make no sense. So the constraint on business decision making that everything has to make sense in advance is actually a creative limitation which imposes huge opportunity costs on business. I'll give you an example. Um, there are certain products, for example, I don't know if you've got a Philips air fryer. OK, you're in Asia, so you probably do. It's much more common out there. Yeah, we have. We, we do. And, uh, Not Philips. Okay. We do you love it yeah. like it like a child? Yeah, I, I appreciate, you appreciate it. it. OK, um, but but the point about the air fryer is it doesn't make sense in advance. But when you buy one, you become a convert. OK, there are an awful lot of things. There are far more great ideas out there that you can post rationalize than there are great ideas out there that you can pre rationalize. And so the rationalistic requirement that you explain the workings of every possible solution in advance before you can test it is actually a limitation on the pace and range of discovery. Now, I'll give you a lovely example of this. There's a guy on YouTube who's a nutter, right? And he's developed, go and search on YouTube for solar trailer. He's decided he wanted his Tesla to be solar powered. And so he got together a bunch of solar panels on a towable trailer and an inverter. And he says that if I leave my car outside plugged into the solar trailer, okay, um, if I don't drive anywhere for three days, my whole car is essentially charged through solar power. So I, and I looked at this solar trailer and I said, mate, you're a genius because actually I'd buy one because, A, if it didn't work out, I could sell it because it's on wheels and a bloke could just turn up and buy it from me. Right now, the solar panels on my roof are not saleable. Now, this lunatic, I think, has discovered the best product I've seen in 10 years. Because I would buy a solar, tra I might even buy a solar trailer, to be honest, just to charge my computer in the garden when I work out there in the summer. OK, I might buy it because when my friends come in electric cars, I can use it. I will then get an electric car and because I'm going to be working from home three days out of five. Um, OK, three days out of five, I won't be driving anywhere anyway. So my car is now solar powered and I get the extraordinary emotional hit that when I'm driving around in that car, I know it's been powered entirely by the sun, which makes me feel like a god. OK, <laughs> right now, what, I, what I'm saying about that is nobody, nobody in the entire rationalist, deterministic environmental industry had come up with a solar tra trailer. It's a guy on YouTube who just did it to see if it was technologically possible out of a spirit of play. I think from a marketing perspective, he stumbled on genius. All right. Look, let me end with a difficult question then for you. How do we persuade people in your industry to adopt your method of thinking? Because at the moment, what we have, sadly, is the advertising, the marketing, the PR, the communications industries spending an awful lot of time acting on behalf of companies who want to cover up their absence of climate awareness, rather than spending that creative energy that you all have in your industry in coming up with the kind of solutions you're talking about. 
There are a lot of behavioural biases. There's a wonderful um, phrase by Harry S. Truman where he said, everything is possible just so long as you don't care who gets the credit. And it's worth remembering that committed environmentalists may be part of the problem here, that altruism might be part of the problem. And the reason is that people who want to show and signal that they care about the problem automatically adopt highly direct solutions to the problem when the best way to solve the problem might be invisible and oblique rather than direct and highly visible. Because if you want to lay claim for the credit for your own good intentions, you don't come up with soap being sold as a sex product. You want soap to be sold as a public health product. Okay, right. But actually, the sex instinct is pretty strong in human beings. Why not exploit it? Now, I'll give you an example. If you suddenly were, had a campaigning organization which worried about the provision of groceries to the poor, OK, it would set itself up as a charity and it would make itself highly worthy and it would kind of make itself look um, it would make its customers feel slightly, um, uh, should we say, you know, perhaps slightly disadvantaged through the use of this product. Now, the product would look wonderfully well intentioned. Now, you could argue that Ocado and Tesco and Sainsbury's, by offering home delivery, have solved that problem obliquely and commercially. And so there is a danger that altruistic direct solutions crowd out or simply become noisier than highly cunning oblique solutions, which understand that the way to get people to do something isn't always to ask them to do it. It's to change the context in which they they choose their actions in the first place. It's a really interesting concept, but it doesn't quite answer the question that I asked. And that is, the question is that the one of the major problems that we have... Uh, no, 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 it, it, sorry, it's, it's central to the question because a lot of these things start in the, in the wrong place. Unconsciously, people aren't thinking, how do I solve the problem? They're thinking, how can I solve the problem in a way that I get credit for solving it? That's not the question I'm asking. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering where we have a corporate sector uh, and, and indeed yeah. a, a, an entire uh, capitalist mindset that says profit is paramount. I'm wondering, is there a way we can bring your thinking and your theories and, and, and the study of behavioral science uh, to reframe human value and say, actually, profit is not necessarily more important than the planet. I'll give you a very interesting example where I, I actually came up with an idea which showed there's not necessarily a conflict. OK, here are two very interesting things. If you ask people to do you a favor, strangely, they tend to end up liking you more. And therefore, the most underused thing that businesses do is simply asking people nicely, because the economic assumption assumes that nobody will change their behavior without an incentive to do so. The second thing is an example where a company was giving away a very good offer. And I said, why don't you I can't tell you what it is because it's confidential, unfortunately. And I said, why don't you build a recycling requirement into the offer? You can only have this saving if you commit to recycling the product you're purchasing. And they said, but that'll make the offer less attractive. I said, no, in the world of alchemy, actually imposing an ask increases the perceived value of a saving. Explain that. Uh, it's uh, it, you could call it the effort reward heuristic that we that the value of something is affected by the actual effort we put into acquiring. So I'll give you a lovely example. OK, pick your own strawberries doesn't mean the same as cheap strawberries. We tend to assume that we're getting a deal because of something we're doing rather than because the strawberries aren't very good. And so by making by saying we can give you this 20 percent discount 
only if you commit to then recycling the product afterwards, okay? The discount has a higher perceived value because of the condition you impose on it. Now, that is completely counterintuitive to economic thinking or narrow, naive, rationalist thinking, but it's a proven psychological bias which has been shown to work time and time again. And it is, it is the employment of what you have called alchemy, alchemy in your book. Don't assume either or and don't assume a zero-sum game. It's a mistake. It's a fascinating way of thinking, Rory, and, and I appreciate your explaining it to me. And I do hope that your next book will be explaining uh, multiple ways in which we can begin to deploy some of your ideas in the environmental conversation. Rory, I appreciate you talking to me. Thanks very much indeed. It's a pleasure. Jay Moore, thank you very much indeed.